Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. I was born in a trunk in a princess theater in Pocatello. It was during the matinee on Friday And they used a makeup towel for my daddy Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's guest is a charismatic and passionate theatre director who has brought a wide range of beautifully selected and thought-provoking plays to the attention of a wider audience. From the horrors of World War II Nazi persecution of the LGBTQ community in Martin Sherman's seminal bent via Ross Clark's A White Feather, a musical about conscientious objectors, to an up-to-date feel-good celebration of love and friendship in Michael Dennis's delightful nod to sci-fi fandom, Dark Sublime. Stephen Fry is quoted as saying that our guest is a leading figure in British theatre. His drive to present new plays and musicals performed by the very best in young talent has been one of the most refreshing developments in the London theatre world for ages. Oh, and I forgot to say, he's also a talented artist and podcaster to boot. The roar of a grease paint and smell of a crowd is strong with this one. Welcome, one and all, to the very lovely multi-award winning theatre director and more, Mr Andrew Keats. So, Andrew Keats, uh, theatre director, freelance artist, podcast presenter, and more. Uh, firstly, as alluded to by the Judy Garland track, were you born in the trunk of the Prince's Theatre? And secondly, what do you do in your spare time, uh, if indeed you have any? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> thanks to uh, coronavirus, I've got quite uh, quite a lot of spare time on my hands. Um, what do I do? I cook. I love cooking. Um, I identified really early on uh, when I was trying to work out how to be happy in life, that I'm I'm just a creative person. Sure. And 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 that's quite a good label, but a lot of people don't realise what that entails. And I realised that my satisfaction is drawn from having an idea, going through a process, and then ha- having something to show for it at the end. So that could be, oh, I've got a turnip, some onions, and some beans in the cupboard. I know, I'll make turnipy bean, you know, um, and I'll be massively satisfied because I've turned something into something else. Um, the same is true, obviously, with with my, my day job as a director, you know, mm. whether I'm meeting a group of actors for the first time, and then it comes to opening night, or indeed closing night, and um, and you see they've transformed from a, you know, group of keen, eager young actors um, into, you know, a well-formed, polished company playing people completely different to themselves. It's it's about transformation for me. That's what's exciting. Fantastic. And I've got to say, such a fascinating crop of challenging and re- rewarding plays, as well as some delightful high-kicking musical theatre, uh, informing, educating, with a massive dollop of entertainment. Uh, do you reckon that's a good summing up? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Because it it would be lovely, wouldn't it, to, to make out that everything I've done has been wonderful. And, um, and I completely had uh, 100% enthusiasm for all of it Uh, that's not necessarily the case of course not but there are pieces in there that have meant a very great deal to me so I love I love doing musical theatre but I love doing musical theatre that I feel has an integrity to it Um, Mm. yes I've done a few bits of fluff when I was younger but the stuff that really excites me is is when I've collaborated with with 
great composers like Howard Goodall, for example. I've worked with him a number of times and his work just blows me away. It, it speaks to my soul and, you know, every performer that I've ever worked with on his material just comes alive with that score uh, and whoever he's collaborated with on the book, me on one occasion, uh, on a, a reworking of one of his pieces. But also my big passion and probably what I'm best known for doing is is telling stories that are relevant for the times particularly if they affect a social or an ethnic minority group so for example when i saw that ukip was on the rise you know and it really was when ukip was everywhere i decided to do a piece called dessa rose a european premiere which was um predominantly a, a, a black musical set in the antebellum south because sometimes it's the pieces that you do in the zeitgeist that have the biggest resonance rather than just, you know, turning up and saying, look at this piece about racism. Actually, you can be cleverer with that. You can make people go, oh, there's things in this piece that remind me of the racism we've got in at the moment, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, it's about being, it's about curating the pieces in your life and when to do them. Um, so yeah, and, and, and I am really passionate, really passionate for, for BAME artists on stage. I say this as a white guy, a white gay guy, um, you know, doing pieces with David Henry Wong, for example, like Chinglish, wonderful play, which was just glorious to do with a predominantly bilingual cast, all had to speak Mandarin and English. Um, well, yeah, mad. I've done mad things. I've done absolutely <laughs> mad things. And I look back and I just go, God, who is this guy? And then I realize it's me. <laughs> How did it all start for you back in the day? Oh, pain, um, like it always does. <laughs> I mean, um, how did it start? I was a fat gay kid in Tory Bournemouth, and uh, I came out at 13. Wow. Uh, I was hospitalised a number of times at school. Oh, We gosh. had a thing called Section 28, which I'm sure a lot of people will have heard of, which was the non-promotion of homosexuality in schools. Mm. I didn't see myself on television. You know, gay characters were either victims or, or they were comedy, um, or indeed straight people's perception of what is comedy. And there are, a few, there are a few exceptions to the rule, which are really, you know, important pieces like Queer Folk and things like that. But on the whole, I was a fat gay kid, um, didn't fit in with the football crowd, and was very sensitive, brought up by a single parent mother. And so when I couldn't find the role models I wanted on television, um, I started to look for them in the indexes of books, you know, under H, homosexual, what's that? And then um, and then from there, I, I really found great plays by people like Martin Sherman, William M. Hoffman, yes. uh, people uh, like uh, like Kushner, people like Wilde and uh, Tennessee Williams. I mean, the list goes on. But it was the first time I was reading things that told my life as a human being and, and our struggle. And interestingly, because I knew I was different, I had a very open-minded approach to life, the genre that really inspired me uh, uh, was science fiction. Oh, absolutely. Because, of course, in science fiction, it doesn't matter if you're blue, green, you know, an amorphic blob, um, particularly on the shows that I love. It's about acceptance and hope and a future where things are better. Yeah. And so so science fiction and theatre went hand in hand, really, for me. Do you think that was uh, one of a number of light bulb moments for you, uh, also experiencing theatre when you were younger? Well, my, my family was broke. I mean, they had no money. I, I was brought up on a, a council estate in Dorset, you know, so... 
I'd love to say, oh, my parents took me to the matinee every Sunday. They didn't. My mum worked every hour God sent. And I spent a lot of time at home in my bedroom on a computer. But um, I remember she, my mum went to a car boot sale and she brought back all these sort of cassettes and LPs of musicals. And I remember listening to those uh and just sort of lying on my lounge, outstretched, listening to things like Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. <laughs> bits of Sondheim and even bits of Andrew Lloyd Webber at the time. And, and just sort of losing myself in the story. And I think that possibly was the programming for a bit of a director's brain to just lie there and envisage what was happening on stage. <laughs> As an artist, I mean, how how important do you think it is to tell stories but challenge for status quo? Because clearly in your work, as you said, you know, there are lots of, I don't really like to use the word issue-based, but you know what I mean, <laughs> things that really hopefully will challenge the audience and leave them somewhat changed by the end. Well, it's, um, when I teach acting, I sort of talk about this. A lot of people don't realise that, that acting is our first nature. You know, the moment we're born, uh, often the first thing we do is play peekaboo you know, with our parents. And uh, and we enjoy that sort of... After a while, we start to enjoy the, the feeling of abandonment because they're going to pop up again and say peekaboo, you know. <laughs> and then and then from there, we, we develop, you know, things like now you see me, now you don't. And then we start doing hide and seek. And then we start involving other people. And then lo and behold, as kids, we're playing and we're suspending our disbelief and we're using our imagination. And it's our first nature because that's how we learn. Mm -hmm. We learn from observation. We learn that when someone scuffs their knee... Um, that oh, I'll act like my mum does when I scuff my knees. So we start invoking characters. We become the mother. We become the bully. We become uh, the father figure. We become lots of different things. And that's how human beings grow up. Yeah. So for me, acting is 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 the most human thing we can do. Um, now, of course, it's then developed as a craft. But but you know, anytime you see a play and you find yourself or a Netflix drama or a radio drama and you find yourself going oh I wonder if he did it you're essentially just playing peekaboo like you did as a kid <laughs> tell us about people who were a positive influence for you in the early days positive influences probably um well my mum was great my mum still is great um my mum you know very much brought me up she's an East Londoner so she doesn't sound like I I do thanks drama school training for this voice <laughs> Yeah, my my mum would sort of say, uh, if we've got it, you can have it. If we haven't got it, we'll work hard till you can. You know, so that really instilled that if I wanted something, I had to work hard and 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 taught me tenacity. She another phrase uh, she says still does <laughs> uh, treat treat as you find. She always says, which again, you know, and those those simple phrases were was my introduction to the world. So things like racism and homophobia and transphobia and misogyny. You know, yes, of course, I've encountered them. And, and maybe when I was younger, I experimented with them, you know, as everybody does. But they were, forgive the pun, they were alien concepts mm. because it's just not the way I, I was I was brought up. Um, be nice to everybody and challenge the buddies. Um, and now, now I'm told that's a far left perspective. Um, for me, that was just being being kind and being a good human. Yeah. Um, and in regards to who inspired me, my mum, yes. Probably the biggest influ influence when it came to 
sexuality was a playwright called Martin Sherman. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I was 13. I was in my childhood bedroom because my my mum's council house had been uh, flooded thanks to a burst pipe. And I read this play, Bent, by Martin Sherman, which is a play about um, two gay men in Dachau, the concentration camp, who find love and survive together. Well, read the story to find out what happens to them. Spoilers. And uh, Yeah, I'm not going to say no spoilers. <laughs> and, um, you know, I read that play, and it's fundamentally a love story in adversity. And um, about three o'clock in the morning, I shook my mum and took her downstairs, gave her a letter that I'd written, and... Uh, and I, you know, she read it saying, and said to me, you know, I, I love you. It doesn't change anything. And she said, can I go back to bed? And that was how I came out <laughs> to my mum. But that was inspired by a play. Yeah. So my whole drive that I believe that plays can change people's lives. A, I think that can happen because it changed mine. Sure. Um, and secondly, the more plays I've done that reflect niche niche communities and and by niche that doesn't just mean race or sexuality i mean i've just done a piece uh all about science fiction fans you know it's just really wonderful when people go oh thank you for showing my life on stage and i think that speaks to the kid in me that was desperate to see me uh on television i mean i have to add to uh, the one you just referenced dark sublime which i went to see twice i thought it was no! fantastic um i was such a fan of that in fact i was reading it on the on the tube coming in i bought the the, the script of oh. it it is so witty and it, it there's a quite a fine line to get that right when you're not laughing at the fans but you're you're having a good laugh about the whole fandom thing but it, it's it felt very inclusive and i could i think being a science fiction fan and being gay and all the rest of it i was i was waiting for the odd trigger that might sort of be laughing at me <laughs> and it didn't feel like that at all i think that was really a, a bit of a tightrope that the uh, writer managed to uh, navigate well uh, michael dennis that was it michael dennis michael dennis is the playwright it was his first um, professional debut in the west end and i'm really honored that that he trusted me with that play um dark sublime Oh, gosh, this opens a whole part of my life. When I was growing up, as I said, as a kid, one of the places I got a lot of confidence from was because um, my mum was working so much. Uh, I found out about this science fiction society in Bournemouth, which is where I'm from. And uh, she used to literally just drop me off as a kid. Um, and I used to go to conventions and, and meetups of all these different sci-fi fans. And the thing with science fiction fans is... <laughs> They're often exceptionally well-educated people. Um, they're often people that have discovered, I now realise in later life, science fiction through some kind of trauma. Uh, the amount of times when I've been with friends who have been in these shows, you know, I'm, I'm sat with them as they're signing autographs and people have said, you know, I've, I went through cancer and your, your show helped me. Now, from going to these, these sci-fi conventions as a kid, I met so many actors as a little boy who found time for me that then in later life I would end up running conventions. Um, then I went to drama school and then when I came back and I ended up running a theatre and setting up my own production company and all sorts of things, I was so grateful to those people who had been there for me when I was younger. Um, and I had such a black book, you know, a little black book of these amazing names that they would kill to get hold of who were friends, <laughs> um, that I said, right, I'll, I'll come back and I'll help you get some guests and I'll help you raise some money. And so my involvement with the convention world was rather lovely. But <laughs> what's sort of weird is in my in my life, all of all of the heroes in my life, I've either met or worked with. 
So the playwrights I mentioned when I was growing up, when I was gay, like William M. Hoffman and Martin Sherman, you know, they're people I ended up working with and becoming friends. Bill sadly passed away. Martin is still very much in my life. The TV shows I loved, like Star Trek. I was a big Star Trek fan. I still am a big Star Trek fan. You know, from doing these events, I got to meet a lot of these actors. But because I wasn't a how do I put it, a stereotypical fan that just wanted to talk about, you know, season three, episode four. (laughs) Um, They would say, what do you do outside of this? And I would go, oh, I'm a theatre director. Mm. Really? And then we'd sit in the bar and talk about theatre and talk about what was great about being in a sci-fi show, what was dreadful. And some of those people have become very, very lifelong friends. They realise I have a flat in London, so my, my sofa over there in my lounge at the moment has been slept upon by many a Star Trek actor, Star Wars actor, you name Ooh, it. fabulous. And um, it's sort of lovely because the fat kid that was bullied and, and, and looked at these people so hopefully through the television screen you know now as this mid 30 year old gets to you know see them with their makeup off and and make them a bacon sandwich in the morning Mm -hmm. now dark sublime obviously that is why the fan is portrayed the the way it was this fan who meets a an actress an actress who was in an old 1970s show that was basically blake seven but it's not blake seven (laughs) and um what was interesting is it was my birthday and a friend of mine mark gatiss who wrote Sherlock and was in Doctor Who and we know who Mark Gates. You know who Mark Gates is. Well, you know, I don't like to presume. I hate name dropping. But uh, Mark came down the stairs to my birthday, sort of hobbling like like Richard the Third a bit, and he'd fallen over on some ice. Uh, I said, "You're right." He went, "No, I'm, I'm in an awful lot of pain." Um, anyway, so he gave me this lovely card from he and his husband, and he said, "I've read this wonderful play. You must read it." I said, "What is it?" It's dark, sublime. It's a story about a young gay fan that seeks out um, uh, an ageing science fiction actor. You must read it. So, of course, I did. And then from there, I just made it happen. I sought out great producers. um, And lo and behold, I was doing an event. I was doing an event in Birmingham, I think it was. And I, uh, with a very close friend of mine, Dominic Keating... Lots of people think we're related because they see us together all the time. I'm Keats, he's Keating. Mm. And Dominic introduces me to this uh, this woman uh, called Marina Sirtis. And, uh, Councillor Troy from Star Trek. Councillor Troy from Star Trek. I sense deliberate concealment, sir. Of what? I don't know. And we start chatting and we went out for a fag within five minutes together. Um, she went, got a light. Yeah, I've got a light. And I said, why did you never do the West End after a few hours? Why have you never done Town or Why have you never been in a play she went I don't get any offers in I love the Cypriot accent the London Cypriot accent (laughs) yes yeah and she said um she said I haven't had any offers I said that's a lie I said I put an offer into you three years ago she went I never got it anyway she started (gasps) to realize that some stuff was not getting through to her so we traded details we had a right laugh and we got on like a house on fire and then we by virtue of um, me sending bits and pieces eventually I get this play Dark Sublime an aging um sweary um, actor uh, who um, you know is in, in, in sort of later life and I sent it to her to read and then I got this phone call at God knows what time because of the time difference She's, she lives in, in LA and uh, I just heard this voice at the end of the phone um, and I won't swear but she said it's my f-ing life <laughs> and, um, and I went yeah it is isn't it and she went did he write it for me and I said well he might as well have done <laughs> and she went, you're in it too. She said, that, that, that Ollie, it's all you, in it? 
Anyway, so long story short, we worked very hard. We had these producers and we put this wonderful play on with a fantastic group of actors, Sophie Ward, Simon Thorpe, Jacqueline King, Kwaku Mills, Mark Gatiss was a voice of a computer. Delightful. Of course, yeah. Confirmed. And, and Jacqueline King, of course, another Doctor Luminary. She certainly is. She certainly and, and an Alan Aitborn luminary, which a lot of people don't realise. She okay. did so many of Alan Aitborn's early, early pieces. Um, but there was this wonderful play of of me and Marina's life, sort of in front of us, and yet not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, it was a science fiction play. But what, like what I said earlier, what was clever about it is really it was about um, it was about lesbians. That's what the play was about. It was about older lesbians and um, unconditional love and the similarities between unconditional love and fandom. Mm. And, you know, we were the only play on in town at the time that was that had, you know, had a lesbian character in it, let alone lesbian storyline. But, of course, like all good science fiction, like all good writers, it wasn't brandished all over it. It was a story of older women, love, the comparison between sci-fi, lots of fabulous... 1970s, 80s sci-fi references, which I adored. Oh god, in. absolutely! <laughs> you know, uh, I still, funny enough, I still have some of the props in this flat. There's a coffee <gasps> table in my, yeah, the coffee <laughs> table that was a that was an old um, G plan coffee table, which then lit up with with buttons. That's in the middle of my lounge. Coffee black. Make it yourself. Um, the bot. There's uh, yeah. There's all sorts of bits of set from all sorts of shows in this flat. One thing I do notice, though, with uh, a lot of your plays, particularly with Dark Sublime, but others I've been sort of researching, is that quite often you use small uh, a small space in order to tell it. So it's not necessarily a, a massive theatre. And yeah. I mean, for me, Dark Sublime works so much better because it was so, it felt so intimate. Um, are you particularly drawn to those theatres or is it just yeah. really what you can grab at the time? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both because, look, if somebody phoned me and said, Andrew, will you direct something at the Palladium? I wouldn't say no. Um, but I'll be honest with you. I mean, I ran the Landor Theatre for three years, which was a 70-seat theatre above a pub. Mm. You know, I my expertise in making small spaces work is quite well known. Um, I also quite like it because there's nowhere for an actor to hide. You know, you can't get away with phoning it in if they're sat two metres away from you. Sure. So we really have to look at what we're saying, how we're saying it you know, where we're saying it to. Um, and I, it's just so much more exciting for me. You know, I, I, I always quite like it when I am sat in a small space and I see someone smash a wine glass down and a bit of wine goes on the table and I can see it. You know, that that's delightful. You miss that in a proscenium. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, a lot of the stuff I do is not overtly commercial. You know, it's it's special and it's it's unique and, and it's not necessarily going to sell two and a half thousand um, seats a night. Um, but it might sell 100 seats a night um, and you feel like you're seeing something unique and special. And, and I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And between you and I, um, yeah, I might I might be looking at a bigger theatre um, thanks to uh-huh. thanks to Dark Sublime. Not necessarily because of that play, um, but maybe some people that Marina knows. So this is a forthcoming project then? Can't possibly tell you. Can't possibly say any more. Anymore, but, are, are you um, ticklish? I can't really tickle you online, though. It won't work. I am t- I am very ticklish. Fabulous. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I spoke to um, uh, I spoke to a real childhood hero for about two hours, two days ago, about about a play. Um, and that was thanks to an introduction from Marina. So who knows who that could be? Can we just do a body swap for a year? And I can just have, <laughs> have your life. It sounds so fabulous. You don't want this body after lockdown. <laughs> Scratch and sniff. 
with Nick Randall. Let's talk about some of uh, your favourite plays and, and, you know, the challenging plays you've done. I've been reading about some of the White Feather, which was dealing with uh, cowardice, supposed cowardice during the First World War. Uh, yeah. Bent, of course, you did a version of that. I think you did a couple of Martin Sherman plays. Yeah, let's just talk about some of your highlights. Yeah, so, so growing up as a kid, it was, so growing up as a young director, I was really into um, in, into exploring, you know, queer theatre or gay theatre or whatever the tag is that we're supposed to use for it now. That was my real impetus. Um, I, I'm still very passionate about that, but, um, you know, it, it's different between being 22 and 35. Um, I'm finding myself maturing with my tastes in writing. Uh, I've found myself directing a lot of comedy. I'm very good at comedy, or so I'm told. Um, and it's a very technical... Um, it's a very technical skill working with actors on on comedy pieces, and I love doing it. Uh, I also think sometimes you can get away with doing more with comedy than you can with drama, you know, because if an audience is laughing, then they're listening. Yeah. Um, and you can be subversive, you can be satirical, you know. That's not to say drama doesn't have any of those things, and I equally enjoy doing drama. But um, that is just the route that I found myself on. Um, uh, in regards to my favourite plays, look... <laughs> It's really difficult. I mean, I, I, this play that I'm potentially doing uh, with this person I mentioned earlier, you know, I had never read that play before. And then I read it last week and I immediately go, yep, I'm doing it. And it's a lost play. Um, equally, I can be sent something that's brand shiny new. Um, and it, it's just got to speak to me, you know, in the same way that you'll watch a TV show sometimes and you go, oh, I'm bored of this and you'll turn it off. And yet the rest of the world says it's fantastic. Um I'm drawn to adversity, I'm drawn to great writing, and I'm drawn to plays that I can hear the voices of the characters as I read it. That's when I know I'm onto a good one. Mm. And often, you know, by the third page, I think, if I go, oh, God, if I've got to read beyond this, that's when I know I've got a problem. Um, if I pick it up, like Dark Sublime was one sitting done when that was sent to me, and that was reading on a, on a glaring iPad, and I just devoured it in one sitting. Me and my partner go to the theatre quite a lot, but I must admit that the, the, the plays I am particularly drawn to are the ones in smaller venues, the ones that do challenge. The bigger ones, the high-kicking ones, are great fun, and it's not mm. that I don't enjoy those at all. Um, but uh, I would imagine there should be a, a bigger audience for those plays. Do you find sometimes they get so booked up that people physically can't get in? Uh, yes. Um, when I did Dessa Rose with Cynthia Erivo, that was, um, that, was, that was one. When I said, oh, we're doing Dessa Rose with Cynthia Erivo, and most people, oh, I'm going to definitely come. And two weeks later, when it sold out, uh, Andrew, you must be able to get me in somehow. I went, mm. nope, can't. I've, I've literally cannot physically squeeze you in. Yeah. You know, so if you see something, if if your gut is saying this is going to be a popular show, just book for it there and then, because and because you can put things out on Twitter saying there are barely any tickets left, but because you get people out there that do that anyway. Yeah. Um, trust me, when I'm saying I'm selling out of something, it is selling out. Um, and that's not because it's a marketing ploy of, oh, we haven't sold any, but you know, if I say we're selling out, then we'll have an influx in sales. If it's selling out, it's selling out. Book for it. Um, Dark Sublime was similar towards the end. People going, well, it, it, it must tour, right? No, absolutely not. It's not going to. I still get hate mail. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I still get messages from America going, it's ridiculous that you're not touring this to America. And you go, well, pay for it then. You know, if you want to find 100 grand to, to put that play on in America and everything else, then we will. Mm. But equally with Dark Sublime, I had people traveling from all over the world to see this wonderful Amazing. new play. And, and, and me and one of the producers, Piers Cotty Jones, we... Um, uh, we were interacting with people on social media uh, for a year 
you know, people in Germany, people in Texas, you know, people who travelled from Australia. I mean, uh, extraordinary, really, really extraordinary. And to meet them, to really meet them in the foyer and to have a big hug as if they were friends was wonderful. Even more so now I think about it in these, you know, socially incompatible times. Sure. Would you consider, I mean, you know, the ones that were particularly popular putting them on again? Or is is it all about finding that money? Is it you have to go to a certain production house or I don't know how it works really because I, I, I think I was saying at the time that Dark Supply should have a world tour but obviously really it, 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 it's the money and I, I don't know what else it is just money it really is just money if somebody said to me Andrew I, I want it back I want it back. Uh, I have no doubt that I could work with the producers and we could mount another production of it. I think um, I'd want that cast again. I, I, I would feel I'm quite a loyal, I'm a very loyal person. Um, so I would feel very uncomfortable unless the actors couldn't do it. In that case, that's fine. But I'd want to offer them because they were just so good. <laughs> I mean, they were all great. Isn't there a way you could go to these sponsors and say, look, we'd be getting so much mail about uh, how popular the show is and they want to see it again. And would that not swing it? I absolutely could. Or I could do exactly what you're suggesting with something new. Yes. And that is what I'm doing at the moment. However, you know, um, I, I, I don't know. Is that, the, is that the last I've ever seen of Dark Sublime? I don't know. Um, maybe, I, maybe I will revisit Marianne's flat. Well, I essentially live in Marianne's flat. Um, Marianne's flat was very much based on this flat. If you look at it the other way around, there's a big blue wall and television and yeah, it's the set was my flat because the designer was designing it in my flat. And I looked at him and I went, that looks familiar. And he went, oh yeah, damn. Uh, it's your flat, isn't it? Went, yeah, perfect. Uh, but um, yeah, it's... Uh, I would love to revisit those characters and I would love to have those actors back again because I think there'd be a lot of tears um, on that first day because we really loved each other and um, that sounds like such a horribly cloy thing to say, but we we really did have a bond on that show. I mean, um, I, I know somebody who went to see it. I think it was about seven times. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. And uh, just to be so close to Councillor Troy in that intimate theatre, it's just like, it's quite mind-blowing. But, you know, there we go. Really, yeah, I mean, we, we, Marina and I are in touch. We text each other the other day. Um, we message each other. Uh, th there are things going on in her life that I know about which I can't talk about. I think the only thing I can mention is, you know, the, the hardest thing for me with, with Marina was... Um, she did, she literally finished um, the play whenever it was, whenever we finished it. She finished the play, she had one day off to fly back to America to start filming a new series called Star Trek Picard with, yes. with Patrick Stewart. And she and I knew she had, had a cameo in it, of course, because we were sorting out the schedules and things. And um, what's lovely is you see, first thing when you see Marina on, on screen is she gives Patrick Stewart otherwise known as Captain Picard, a big hug. And, um, but in, so she had done that literally the day after Dark Spine closed, on a plane there, on set. Amazing. But obviously the time it took between then and broadcast, something had happened. Um, uh, Marina's husband, Michael, had passed away. Yes, of course. He'd, uh, he'd, he'd passed away. And, you know, when I heard that, I nearly got on a plane. I nearly got on a plane um, to go and see her. And then... Uh, I was so desperate to give her a big hug to then see her getting a big hug from a friend, Patrick Stewart, um, was, uh, it brought me to tears because that's all I wanted to do was make sure she was all right. And then she was back in the UK um, 
and we all met, the whole cast got back together um, and we had brunch and we heard these boots off in the distance and oh, I think she was swearing about something. I knew I could hear you lot or something. She walked through, <laughs> we all looked at her and, and, and we all burst into tears and, oh. and it was really something extraordinary. I'm really, you know, you hear it all the time, don't you, where you hear people say we, we created a wonderful company, um, but we, we really did. We really did. And um, uh, yeah, I miss them all. I, mean, I, I miss them now. I want to text them all now and say I'm thinking of you. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. I have a ongoing pact with the best friends in my life that when I die, <laughs> trying to keep it not gloomy, but when I, when I die, I... Um, I've requested that the only thing I ask for my funeral is I would like a full orchestra and choir to sing this song because it's my favourite song. Um, and so that's why I always keep a, a musical director as a best friend at all times in my life. Uh, and uh, the song that, that, that I just adore because it's, it's such a genius song, the way that it's constructed, its lyrics, its sound, um, and that is the finale, uh, Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George. It's just my favorite thing it's it's so polyphonic it's um it's essentially a painting singing so it's developed over three chords um that uh, that develop and change and augment um because there are three primary colors so you can only have three chords and i think that is just musically genius and the sound makes me weep so yes the finale to sunday the part with george otherwise known just as sunday dot why did you write these words they are your words, George. The words you uttered so often when you worked. Order. Design. Tension. Composition. Balance. Light. Dust. I cannot read this word. Harmony. So much love. Words forever with his colors. How George looks, he can look forever. What does he see? His eyes so dark and shiny, so careful, so exact.
2017 Broadway cast recording of Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George and the finale of Sunday with Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalee Ashford, which Covid willing will be transferring to a London stage later this year. Now, of course, being so multi-talented as you are, you're not only a director, you're a teacher, uh, you're also an artist. And I have purchased a couple of uh, pieces of your art which are inspired from a certain science fiction programme. Make it so. And I adore it so much. And everybody should buy your art. Uh, Particularly at the moment, because of COVID, the dreaded 2020 and now 2021, it's been a real struggle for artists. And uh, some people out there, you know, some of the the, the trolls who probably complain about anything, um, don't seem to understand how important the arts are. Give us a little idea of of your take on this and how it's been for you. Yeah, so, um, gosh, first of all, the arts matter. Um, that's that's the first thing. It's extraordinary how many people, you know, uh, are so vocal, particularly on Twitter, uh, that the arts are, you know, just for, you know, the lefty lovies, you know, why should they be bailed out? They just prance around on stage. You know, uh, that's simply not true. Firstly, as I, I've explained earlier, you know, our, our connections with, with humanity, like I said, with the games we play as kids and things, it's it's our first nature. Um, but also, you know, particularly any Tories out there, you know, who seem so obsessed with finance, you know, that the contribution that the arts makes to the UK economy is more than fishing, 10 times more than fishing. Yeah, I think it's on average every, um, every year the arts contribute approximately 10 billion pounds to the uk economy Mm. um so that's worth protecting right and secondly i think it's important to remember that this is something that we're really good at we're fantastic at theater we're world leaders when it comes to theater so can we can we hold on to something this country is good at you know i'm being told left right and center that you know sovereignty is very very important well surely that's the same for culture in that sovereignty doesn't have any uh, necessary value to it but it's important to maintain so i think culture is the same um what is also what is also a shame is is people don't realize how incompatible um the theater industry is with covid-19 you know when was the last time you saw a play where someone didn't punch each other or kiss each other or embrace or touch or stroke or whatever you know humanity is about is about touch and and um and resistance um and clashes and 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 it's very very difficult to create drama if you're 2 meters away from each other at all times it's yeah. just it it's not it doesn't ring true um 
so look our, our theatres are, are we have the greatest theatres in the world in my opinion um, certainly some of the oldest uh, but they weren't built to have firstly the um, the social distancing measures that, that are being put in place um, yes there is some work being done but it's often with smaller casts at exceptional risk to the producers and the investors you know how can um how can I justify, you know, getting a large cast of actors together, um, putting them in a big mansion somewhere or a big house um, so they can be in a social bubble, and yet it takes one member of the cast to go down with some kind of symptom and the whole thing is off, yeah. you know, and that's just too much money for someone like me to lose, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, yes, there are some safer choices to put on with one, two, maybe three actors, Um but it does feel like the the tail wagging the dog there a bit, you know. The stuff I want to put on, it's it's. There's very few things like that that I've I've come across, um, and I will leave that to the people who are really good at doing, you know, cheap but commercially viable stuff and getting it out there and, and leading the way. Personally, I'm I'm sitting in the shadows a little bit because I haven't got the financial resources to put something on, um, and I also haven't got anything that I, I, I want to put on that is worth that risk yet. Mm. What am I doing? Um, well, like I said to you at the beginning of this interview, you know, I'm a creative person. I like to create something, go through a process and, and have something to show at the end of it. And I had, um, I had a couple of prints on my wall, which I bought um, uh, by a great artist. And um, I wanted to put a piece in the middle. And I really, really wanted my favourite moment in cinema um, which I was meditating on a little bit uh, because of COVID-19, is the moment when Kirk and Spock are separated in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, or The Wrath of Khan, if you're very British. And, <laughs> uh, and they're separated by a perspective as Spock dies. Sorry, spoilers, but if you haven't seen The Wrath of Khan, then it's just too late. There's other spoilers um, that are following on from that, which... Uh... <laughs> there are further spoilers. Yes, there are, there are, there are. Multiple spoilers. The... Yeah, I mean, if you... It, look... Star Trek fans, I don't think I've ruined anything. Um, but The Wrath of Khan is my favourite, favourite sci-fi film. And this this moment is really beautiful. It's a beautiful moment between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. And um, I thought, that's very COVID, isn't it? You know, two friends separated, um, unable to touch each other during, you know, during a crisis. And so I just started drawing. And I'd got a new iPad, a brand new iPad. Um, which I regretted buying because then COVID happened. I was like, what on earth have I bought this damn thing for now? I've got no money. So in in my head, I was like, well, I wonder if I can pay for the iPad and my shopping bills if I could sell maybe 10 or so of these. Um, so I had some made up and I put them on Twitter and said, look, I'm broke, um, but I have made myself this picture. If you like it, you know, um, would you buy it? And then people started to buy it. And then some people started asking for commissions. Um, a friend of mine, Dom Jolly, the comedian from uh, Trigger Happy TV. Hello! Yeah! Yeah, I'm in the library! Yeah! And great travel writer and many other things. Dom started seeing some of the stuff I was doing and he said, look, if, if I give you this idea, could you make this for me? Um, and so we started a collaboration, me and Dom Jolly now. Uh, we've done two pieces together. He gives me the idea, I create it digitally, and then we put it through a British uh, printers, and it goes through a proper printing process. And it's none of this Vista print, not, oh, it's BBC. It's none of this um, 
it's none of this online cheap stuff. It's all done properly, and I get samples backwards and forwards until we get the colours right. And um, yeah, I found myself building an online shop, just finding things that I like, either things that make me laugh or things that inspire me. Um, and then I just sit down with my iPad, I draw away, um, put it out there for pre-order, and people buy it, and it enables me to eat and. I've discovered a whole new a whole new side of my life as an artist. It's so industrious of you, and I just love what you do. And as I said, I think in the text last week that there that there are so many potential things you could be doing. Other sci-fi shows, and uh, I mean, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but there's so much out there that that people would lap up. So <laughs> the world's your lobster, as they say. I've I've already had yeah I've had some really lovely lovely um some, some lo lovely ideas people have sent to me and they're sort of saying you know, oh if you could if you could do this music commission I'll let you sell it on your shop as well you know and it's really lovely because you know some people can be very protective of their commissions you know and actually that that's a really lovely thing where I go okay sure and 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 I'll be honest with you I have been um as well as <laughs> as well as doing this artwork um I've also been been teaching um. Uh, and I, t I do t I teach at drama schools a lot, and I love teaching at drama schools. But my my friend, um, who actually works for uh, a very famous social media company, is based in um, Austin in Texas. He messaged me um, to say, Andrew, um, we uh, our daughter, um, we are, you know, we'd love to do some acting lessons with you. We suspect you've got some time on your hands. Would you mind? And I was like, yeah, sure, okay. And so I started doing acting lessons with her and she enjoyed it so much that then I got another mum sort of email me um, and say, oh, I've, I've heard what you're doing. Uh, would you mind doing that for my daughter and another one? And so I've now got about four students all in Texas um, that I'm teaching acting to via um, video conferencing tools, um, which is... Uh, which is really lovely. I mean, the time difference is a bit of a strain. I've literally, I'm going to be teaching straight after this interview with you. Um, Gosh. But that's really lovely. I've been connecting with people all over the world teaching acting. So so again, if, if someone is an actor and that they want to look at particularly Declan Donlan's approach, which is the actor and the target, which I find really helpful and really helps actors who perhaps feel like they never really learned acting. They just learned lines and hope for the best. Um, then I'm, I'm doing those one-to-one -one tutorials. Um, as well as my artwork... How do we find your artwork online? It's very, very easy. So if you go to andrewkeats.co.uk, um, you'll find my website. And there you've got um, tabs about my teaching. You'll see production shots of all the productions that I've spoken about. Um, you'll also find a link to my podcast, the Show People podcast with Andrew Keats, which um, is all around the world as well. That's another one that's just sort of spiralled out of control. Once I had 200 listeners, then I had 30,000 listeners. And I was like, what Fabulous. um and of course the artwork and the artwork it's very easy it's it's all affordable that's that's the thing that was important to me i didn't want to be i didn't want to be greedy um so there's different tiers of artwork some of the celebrity collaborations i was told no you should charge this so i have um the things i've just come up with from my own little brain you know you can buy a print from i think 35 quid um you know and it's you get a lovely handwritten note from me saying thank you um and yes, yeah, so that's the artwork, that's the teaching, uh, the link to the podcast, uh, which is essentially a, a podcast where I do like you do. I sit and I chat with people about where they're from, where they're going, what they've learned, what they haven't, um, and try and have a bit of a laugh and keep it light at the same time. I've heard it. It's wonderful. Uh, you're a natural, sir. Oh, a natural. Hello, company. 
Welcome to the Show People podcast, the podcast that shines a spotlight on the UK performing arts industry and those dedicated to their craft. My name is Andrew Keats. I'm a director and your host. Talking about the the writing, because you're an actor as well, or you have been trained to be an actor, have you thought about writing something that you could appear in yourself? No, I don't. I mean, I in 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 my day, God, I've become a man that says in my day. Um, in my day, you know, there wasn't there wasn't such a thing as a director's course. So all you could do is, you know, you did acting and drama at school, and then um, then you did the school production. Then you found out about these very expensive places called drama schools, and I went to three of them. And then then you then you graduate. But I wanted to. I sort of I enjoyed acting, but I enjoyed acting in the rehearsal room. It was the idea of doing the show eight times a week. I couldn't bear. Mm. And I, it's funny that there are, there's been a couple of directors who have asked me to do things in uh, a couple of films before. Uh, they said, oh, you're just so perfect. And you go, what? You, what are you trying to say? What this, um, this slightly <clears throat> stubborn academic looking character, that, you know, you want me to play? And they go, yeah, but you know, you, you, you would do it well. And I've just said no, because, you know, when I'm dead, I hope... I hope people know that I invested everything into being the best director I could be. Yes, I know I could play parts, but it's not my love. And there are actors out there who are much better than, than I would ever be. I haven't acted for donkey's years. Okay. Um, I have an understanding of acting. Of course I do. I teach it. But, you know, I think I think when you're carving your way in this in this profession there are those of us that have carved our way to be facilitators and there are those um, those who do the job, you know, and... And there are certain there's a certain tool bag that I've got in one hand as a as a facilitator that an actor doesn't necessarily have as a performer. Okay. And it's lending them my tools and and then equally they'll bring something out and then I'll be flabbergasted and learn from them. So yes. Uh, would I ever write something for myself? No. Um I develop a lot of things. I've developed a lot of musicals and a lot of plays because I do have an understanding of structure and language and drama and comedy. So again, I'll, people will send me their darlings to look at and then they get a big report from me saying why I hate it, um, but how it can be better, in my opinion. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it, they'll either totally agree or they'll never speak to me again. Um, and it's often the people that go, oh, I see what you mean there, that in my opinion, again, um, because it's all just art, uh, that's the collaborations I really, really enjoy. I hasten to add, though, something like Dark Sublime. There was there was really nothing from me. To make. That was all Michael Dennis. There was nothing I think I did to improve that in regards to the writing. The production, yes. There were things I did with the production which wasn't in the play, but the, the writing in that was, was as is. If anything, it probably had a couple of lines cut because um, because a line had been dropped, perhaps. But but because you're, you have an acting background, I would have yeah. thought an actress, a director, is going to be a lot more touchy-feely and understand <laughs> what the, the, the actors need and hopefully uh, you know, give them confidence. Well, since Kevin Spacey, we're all a lot less touchy-feely. <laughs> um, well, yeah. <laughs> Let's qualify that then. No, 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 I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. Uh, I just can't. It's always nice to have a dig at Kevin Spacey now and then. <laughs> um, uh, yes, it does help. It does help because, you know, there are... Yes, I, there are directors out there who have never been on stage before, uh, unlike me, um, who will just say, be better, you know, or they'll click their fingers, go over there. You know, some some actors really like that way. It's just, it's not my way. I, I tend to help my actors get to where they are through questions and thoughts uh, and asking, you know, uh, where they are getting their 
what they're feeding from in the scene, whether that be a thought, whether that be a subtext, whether that be a person, um, and concentrating on their focus um, and their truth and, and, and bringing things from our own lives into their imagination so we can make it truthful. And, and that's really my job. My job is to make the actors truthful and the conceit and the show around them um, interesting, beautiful, and uh, often, uh, often abstract in, in, my, in my case. Well, that's a lovely end to the interview. Andrew Keats, thank you oh, so much. Um, my pleasure. As usual, we uh, always give our guests a celebrity goodie bag. And the fact <gasps> that we are separated by, by space and time will not stop us. So if we get some uh, details from you at some point, something that rather gorgeous will be winging its way uh, to you. That's very, very kind of you. Oh, that means that means the world to me. Um, and if, if anybody does want to um, keep up to date with my my ramblings and things, um, <laughs> you can, uh, gosh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Andrew Keats. I'm on Instagram at Mr. Andrew Keats, and the website again is andrewkeats.co.uk. And one very final thing, which is uh, the bane of my life, you spell Keats K E A T E S, because I spend my whole life, every phone call, every time I need to fill in a form or someone has to fill in a form on my behalf, they go, What? Keats, like the poet? And you have to go, No. Uh, no, it's K-E-A-T-E-S. And you go, oh, it is like the poet. No, he spelt it K-E-A-T-S. Oh, so you spell it K-E-A-T-S. <laughs> K-E-A-T-E-S. Uh, it's Keats with an extra E. That is that. That is my tragedy. And no doubt my tombstone will be spelt wrong um, because that is just uh, the irony that comes into my life. <laughs> Andrew Keats, thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. So I can't quite be called... Overnight sensation For it started many years ago When I was born in a trunk In the Princess snsonlineshow.com your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts featuring actors, writers, journalists stand-up comedians, musicians and more you can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases and with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics, including health, mental health, women's rights around the world, and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs. A forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. snsonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.